Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, as we head into 2020, one of the consensus calls is that emerging markets, currencies, and assets generally will rally throughout next year. Right now, you're seeing emerging market currencies, at least the index, at the highest levels of the year. And we're so lucky to have with us uh, to talk about what people may be getting right and what they might be getting wrong with their forecasts on emerging markets and currencies next year. As Dr. Wynn Thin, Global Head of Currency Strategy for Brown Brothers Harriman. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. I'd love to get your take on that. I mean, you've heard also these forecasts. What are people getting right? Well, I think what's right is that markets in general have stepped back from the brink. You know, um, you know, several months ago, we were looking at a hard Brexit. We are looking at an intensifying U.S.-China trade war. And over the last several weeks, those, those tailors have, have eased. I, have, I can't say with any certainty that they've disappeared. Uh, for instance, um, Mr. Johnson, after his big election victory, said, oh, we're gonna, still going to leave December 31st no matter what. You know, so hard Brexit, it's still floating around out there. I don't think that's the base case, but it's out there. Uh, U.S.-China trade deal, great. We just got news that they're going to sign something, phase one, in, in mid-January, likely. Um, but... That's the low-hanging fruit. We had trouble getting the easiest part done, and we've got phase two plus coming up. So it's, it's going to be some low-level sort of tensions, I think, uh, persisting throughout 2020. That's not to say markets can't rally, risk, can do, risk assets can do okay, but you just have to be, you know, you know I guess be cautious. I guess that's my, my, my watchword. Yeah, because I'm, you know, as Lisa and I have been talking about currencies and, and so on, I'm just, I always kind of lead with, I have a very difficult time coming up with a bear case for the U.S. dollar, I'm looking at the dollar index is off about a third of one percent today. But you know, it, it, I'm just not sure what rallies against it. But I guess you know, do you think that the dollar could appreciably depreciate this year? Appreciate well, Paul, I mean, you really have touched on really the, the big debate because you know, look, in 2019, long you know, going long dollar was really the way to go, at least until Q4. Um, and I think I think you and I are in the minority now. I think uh, you know most most researchers and forecasters are looking for a weaker dollar next year. And I have to agree with you. If you don't like the dollar, where do you go? That's my first question. Okay, if you want to short the dollar, where do you go long? Well, UK. You know, again, Brexit issues are still there. The economy is, is still going to remain very weak under, under this, this continuing uncertainty. Uh, Eurozone is struggling. Uh, we may get another round of stimulus. Uh, that remains to be seen. Japan struggling with the consumption tax hike impact. So it's really hard for me to get excited about a lot of other places. And I think it goes back to sort of the, we're the least bad place out there. Although you could say people are going to put more money into emerging market currencies, yeah. which you've seen. Uh, do you buy that? Or? Yes, I do. So okay. uh, we just put out a quarterly, uh, I guess, two weeks ago. And we do have this sort of bifurcated dollar outlook that against the majors, it should do better. But against emerging markets, uh, it will do a little bit worse. So it's, it doesn't always happen. A lot of times the dollar, you know, really trades in lockstep, but this is one of those times where we think we can get a divergence between major currencies and emerging market currencies. So which nations, which crosses are going to kind of drive that in emerging markets? In emerging markets, well, that's the thing we've been telling our clients is, you know, you can't just go wildly long EM. There, there's a lot of idiosyncratic risk out there. You know, for instance, we're very negative on, remain very negative on South Africa and Turkey for various reasons, uh, much more positive on, say, Brazil and Mexico. And sort of agnostic on a lot of things in between, Argentina? but it's really it's really just um, a matter of really doing your homework. And I say this all the time, you know, whether it's we're in a bear market or, or a bull market, you know, you really got to do your homework. You look under the hood: which countries are doing the right things, which countries are doing the wrong things. Um, and it really, really, I think, when when all the dust settles, 
the performance sort of speaks for itself. All right. You mentioned Brazil. That's kind of where I wanted to go. What's your thesis on Brazil? Because I know that obviously when people think about emerging markets, that's one of the first places they think about getting yes. exposure. Yes. So Brazil got hammered last uh, during this. I say last year. I feel like it's already in 2020. But it got hammered in, um, in much of 2019. And for, I think for good reason. But a lot of the um, good things are happening now. Uh, growth is finally starting to pick up. Um, Mr. Bolsonaro was able to push through a majority of his fiscal reforms. Were, you know, I was actually pretty skeptical that he would be able to do so, but he got the majority of it passed. Um, the central bank has cut rates aggressively. That's the sort of the, I think, the, the, the warning sign. You know, I think a lot of investors are used to 10%, 12% rates in Brazil. You know, you just put money in, government bonds, what have you, and you get a, a really solid yield. But, you know, we're at record low 4.5% for the sell rate. Uh, I think that's the bottom. But my only point is that we used to get a lot of cushion. You know, we used to get a lot of sort of risk premium for what's going on in, in Brazil. And we're no longer there. So we're sort of priced for perfection. Uh, maybe the market's getting a little too optimistic. But just, again, it's good things. The, the economy is starting to, to finally respond to the stimulus. Um, another round of, of structural reforms, I think, is in the pipeline for 2020. So, you know, it's, it's overall a good story. We just have a few hours left of the last day of the trading uh, of trading of 2019. So it's time to get philosophical. There we go. <laughs> Paul's like, I'm going to go back to practicing my golf stroke. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the concept of de-dollarization because we've seen an incredible amount of net buying of gold by central banks around the world as they try to diversify away from the dollar. Do you buy that that could potentially gain steam and create a bit of weakness for the dollar? Well, I've been in the markets for... 30 plus years. His face I, I, is basically I, screaming, nope, <laughs> nope, not buying it. And I have to say, I'm not exaggerating. I've heard the story you know, multiple, multiple times. And, you know, at first it was going to happen, I think the big time was when the euro was introduced. Well, of course, the euro, we got this big you know, economic powerhouse and it's going to you know, replace the dollar. Um, it's interesting you ask that because the IMF just released its, its quarterly COFA data, Composition of Foreign Exchange Reserves. And the dollar shares actually ticked up a little bit to around 62%. It's always been sort of around 60%, 65%. And if you look at the, at the euro uh, share, uh, it's always sort of been the, the sum of the parts. You know, if you took you know, pre-1999, you took you know, French franc, Italian lira, blah, 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 you added them all up. That's pretty much what the euro is right now. So it's, it's, there's still no one out there that to really challenge the dollar. What about the whole concept, the other philosophical question facing currencies, of a uh, crypto UN, mm. right? The idea of some sort of crypto currency that could supersede the dollar. No, that's, I mean, uh, I think that was Governor Carney of the BOE just sort of threw that out there. Yeah. It was like, you know, dropping, a, uh, a, throwing a hand grenade into the crowd oh, on the way out. Oh, we ate that up, yeah. Uh, it was really fascinating. Um, you know, I, you know, I guarantee, I'll say this. No. <laughs> so the, only, the one philosophical thing I noticed that uh, the, the person's, uh, 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 an observer's interest in cryptocurrencies is in, inversely related, I'm sorry, is uh, positively related to their, uh, inversely related to the age. So the older you get, I think the more skeptical you are of cryptocurrencies, and the younger you are, like, okay, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. So, you know, I'm the oldest guy in the room, I think. So <laughs> I'm going to be the skeptic and say, look, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the whole blockchain technology is there, right? And it has all sorts of, um, you know, secrecy provisions, things like that. But, you know, in terms of an actual, you know, reserve currency, you know, it just doesn't meet those, those qualities, you know, the sort of the, the conditions for being a currency, right? And the store value, unit of measure. Right. You know, it just... You know, when, when you tell me a, 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 if, a, if a, uh, a currency, you know, can rally, you know, 500% in right. a day or drop 
or you know drop a thousand percent or whatever it's just you know it doesn't that's the not what central banks, factor, right? right? No, the central banks. Are, if, right. I, you know, I've met a lot of central banks. In general, they're very conservative. Yeah. They, you know, they want something solid, and that's why the dollar's still there. You can yep. trust the dollar. You might not agree with everything we're doing, but it's got a great track record. Dr. Winthin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Winthin is global head of currency strategy, Brown Brothers Harriman. Looking at the consumer, it's really been the driver for this economy. The um, you know consumer confidence, uh, whether you look at the jobs or housing prices, the consumer's really been uh, the component of this economy that has really been supporting the U.S. economy as uh, business investment, as manufacturing continue to be under a modest amount of pressure. Let's get the latest indicator of the Consumer Confidence Index. We welcome Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators for the Conference Board, joining us on the phone from New York City. So, Lynn, give us uh, some color on what your data uh, announced today means for the consumer. I think the consumer is going to continue to prop up uh, the U.S. economy uh, in in early 2020. I mean, we had a very slight marginal dip in uh, consumer confidence, uh, mostly in people's expectations, uh, you know, regarding jobs and their income prospects, which may suggest no real pickup in uh, in consumer spending. Uh, but we still expect uh, consumers to spend enough, at least for us to have a positive growth in Q1. When do we start to care? The fact that we did see a slight decline in December, four or five uh, in the previous months, we saw a dip like this. We've really just been moving sideways. I think really that's the story for 2019 and probably in early 2020 as well. So no cause for alarm. This is sort of typical behavior. It's behavior, too, that suggests, you know, we're sort of at, at a plateau. So, um, you know, our expectations are that the economy is going to continue to expand at around 2% uh, in the first quarter, second quarter. Uh, consumer spending should come in at around 2.5% in Q1. Um, so really no red flags as of yet. One of the key issues uh, supporting the consumer has been the job market. Again, uh, unemployment down around three and a half percent, the best it's been in you know fifty or sixty years. Um, what is your survey saying about uh, the labor market? I think what we're seeing here is that consumers expect a little bit of softening in the labor market in 2020. Um, not that that translates into, uh, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, layoffs and, and any other sort of negative behavior, uh, but maybe that it won't grow just as fast as it has in, uh, in 2019. I was looking at this data today that shows half of the U.S. population spends more than they take in every uh, every month. And I find it compelling because it kind of speaks to this two-tier economy that we're in. And I'm wondering from a consumer confidence level, do you break it out or do you have a sense of how confidence is different depending on the income level? Absolutely. I mean, if you take it, uh, a look at sort of, you know, consumers earning under 50000 a year, uh, their confidence level is at 107 not on average, let's say, uh, which is confident, but not as confident as their counterparts who are earning 50000 and over and are averaging at, a one, you know, at around 138. So it continues to be sort of a, uh, a split uh, economy here in terms of, of consumers. Uh, and while both uh, the upper end and the lower end remain confident, um, those in the upper end are much more confident. How about housing? That's been a big part of, that is a big part of a consumer's net worth. And the housing market's generally been pretty strong with low interest rates. What's your survey saying about the uh, housing market in the U.S.? 
Yes, I mean, that remains sort of a bright spot. And we did see a pickup in the uh, percentage of consumers who said they intended to uh, purchase a home over the next six months. And I think we can attribute that to the uh, several cuts that we've seen in, you know, in interest rates. Um, So that should bode well for housing. I think we got some positive news this morning. So that could be a very, uh, you know, bright spot uh, in 2020. And obviously, if consumers are purchasing homes, they're going to need, you know, durables to go in there. So that may be a boost to spending as well. Lynn Franco, thank you so much for being with us and happy new year to you. Lynn Franco is Senior Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board. Well, 2019 is, has been what Lisa Abramowitz has, I think, correctly uh, coined the everything rally year. Everything seems to I can't have done. take credit for that. I like it, though. I'm, I'm I know, but I'm it. not taking credit for it. <laughs> carry everything on. rally. That includes gold. So uh, which kind of, you know, given we've seen risky assets go to see gold move up 20 uh, percent off its June low. Also very interesting to get a sense of what's going on in gold and the metals market and other things financial. We welcome Frank Holmes. CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors uh, based uh, in San Antonio, Texas. So, Frank, again, I'm just looking at my gold chart here. And since early June, uh, gold now has rallied about 20 percent. What's behind that? A negative real interest rates. Now, Bloomberg has a beautiful uh, function. It'll let you take a look at all the go- uh, government bonds around the world. And you saw the peak took place in August when it was a record number of government bonds were offering negative real interest rates to try to stimulate economic activity. And that's the great imbalance that we have. The balancing of the economy's fiscal and monetary policies. The fiscal policies are tax and regulation, monetary money supply, and real interest rates. And the unprecedented uh, number of uh, bonds that are offering negative real interest rates to try to stimulate economic activity is a catalyst for gold to trade higher. So... This is an important point that we've had negative yields for years now, but this year we actually saw inflation tick up beyond uh, where the yields were. In other words, there was a sense that you were losing money by parking it in bonds. Is that the idea here? And that was the, sort of the shift in 2019 versus the other years where there also were negative interest rates? Well, no, it's, it's, it is part of it. It's a good comment you make. Uh, but I think it really is, if you take a look at the aggregate number, uh, it hit an all-time high in August, and that's when gold hit an all-time high. So we're seeing a strong correlation by, I guess, quant macro funds that are going long gold every time that trend starts momentum of more and more government sovereign bonds going in negative yields. But the inflationary in the U.S. is real, uh, especially if you look at prices at Target, and Walmart. And Target and Walmart are critical for covering the upper middle class down to the lower class and all classes in that range. And we're seeing inflation running 5 to 6% uh, with the tariff war. So you are seeing, it doesn't show up in CPI numbers, but the, uh, the real consumer going out and buying products is experiencing inflation pushing 6%. So, Frank, where do you think gold, I'm looking at gold here, $1,521 uh, an ounce, $1,521. Where's your expectation for gold maybe a year from now? Well, it's easy for gold to go up or down 20% in any rolling 12-month period for the past 15 years. Uh, It's this DNA of volatility 70% of the time. So I I think you could see gold uh, track up to 1,800, maybe take out the 1,900 uh, high that took place in, in 2011. 
Uh, and the reason why I say that is because this imbalance between monetary and fiscal policy position makers is still not resolved itself. There's only countries that have really lowered corporate taxes or creating tax-free zones or incentives are America and China. Uh, now, fortunately, they're 40% of, of global trade, and that's an important macro factor. But I, I think that the rest of the countries, especially Europe and Japan, uh, there's no conviction to actually streamline the regulations, which have been growing at a, at a 20% CAGR for the past decade. All right. So we covered gold. Let's move on to oil. Uh, we're seeing oil prices surging this year, or I guess surge is the wrong word. They've risen significantly. The, yes. uh, and of late, they have been rising. How much more uh, space is there in this rally, in your opinion? Uh, I think that uh, oil will run into difficulty, $80. Uh, the frackers are, are, are just an incredible game changer. And, and you know, we saw this morning that a Russia that, in fact, uh, they're lowering some of their five-year gas contracts uh, to Europe. Uh, now, this is great for global economic activity, uh, but it's not so great for the uh, energy stocks. So it's interesting. You know, when I think about gold, it's a, you know, it's a commodity, obviously, supply and demand. It seems like demand has been really the determinant of where oil is going to trade. If there's a trade deal out there, easing trade tensions, oil can rally. If we have a bad tweet about trade between U.S. and China, oil tends to pull back. How are you thinking about oil in 2020? Is it really demand-driven or supply-driven? Uh, I think it right now is still supply-driven. Uh, and I think the, uh, the, the technological breakthroughs uh, in America, have uh, in addition to uh, the Ubers of the world, how we've changed uh, uh, transportation, uh, we've changed the energy dynamics. So I, I think that uh, it's going to be definitely supply is going to be strong coming out of the U.S. They, they keep lowering the price of them, costing of the cost of them finding energy. Uh, it's they have a surplus of energy. In fact, earlier this year, electricity prices in Houston went to zero. Uh, from the surplus of electricity, and not only from gas, but from windmills, uh, etc. So I think it's a game changer. Frank Holmes, thank you so much uh, for being with us and Happy New Year uh, to you. Frank Holmes is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for U.S. Global Investors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.